0: Welcome to the Sounding Off with Kim Munson podcast. Be sure and check out our website. That is KimMunson, M-O-N-S-O-N dot com. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter. You'll get first look at all of our upcoming guests for the show, as well as our most recent Sounding Off with Kim Munson podcast and our most recent op-eds thrilled to have on the line with me Ben Martin. You know him. He is a patriotic historian. He is a a West Point grad and a former Army Ranger. And we thank the Harris family for bringing all of this information to you. They are a great sponsor of the Kim Munson Show. Uh, This is a continuation of our broadcast from October 27th. Uh, where we were talking about a young Lincoln. And there is so much information that we wanted to delve deeper into this. Ben Martin, thank you so much for joining the podcast.
1: Oh, I'm really happy to be here today, Kim. Glad to be with you and with Steve. Thank you.
0: Well, we talked about on the air this speech that Lincoln gave to the Young Men's Lyceum in 1838. And people can go back to my website and pull the podcast of that show. And that is an excellent uh, uh, an analysis of that. But a couple of things that came out during that show broadcast that I think is important for people to understand as Lincoln as a, as a youngster, how he grew up, and uh, his relationship with his father. I'd like you to talk a little bit about that again, Ben Martin.
1: Okay, well, to say that, Lincoln, when he was a young man, they lived... In really the rural parts of America, they lived in Kentucky, and rural Kentucky, and they lived in uh, rural Indiana. And they lived in rural Indiana for the time when you would say that Lincoln was a, a young, he was a teenager. You know, he was growing up, he was understanding everything. And so his mom, his first mom died. His first mom tried to educate him and tried to send him to school. To the local public schools that they had, you know, country schools, one-room schoolhouse type of thing, and Lincoln's father resisted that, resisted educating his son because he was making money by renting Lincoln out to the other farmers around there, and he was getting paid for Lincoln's services, which denied him the right to uh, or the opportunity to go to school, and so that's when that that relationship. That estranged relationship began. And then Lincoln's mom died when Lincoln was a young boy. And then his father remarried. And the second mom was also very uh, pro-pushing Lincoln into school to get him some education. His father still resisted and was still renting him out. And that is where the relationship, the estranged relationship, Began got worse. It got stronger, I guess you could say. And the the thing that I'd like to say to characterize that from Lincoln's point of view was the old phrase, he was beaten like a rented mule, uh, which normally applied to boxing matches or wrestling matches or maybe team sports, but that's what we used it for. But it was what uh, people would do when they had rented equipment, just like when people have rental cars. They don't take as much care of them as they do their own car. Well, that's what Lincoln was. He was a rented person. He was a rented laborer, and uh, he wasn't necessarily taken very good care of by those people that were renting him. So so that's where the estrangement came.
0: Do you not think that this probably went into the experience of why he took such a stand against slavery?
1: That is one of the reasons. That is one of the big reasons. The other big reason was that Lincoln, as he went to, uh, the, when he was becoming, at the end of his teen years, and they were getting, they got into Illinois, he took two trips uh, down the river, two boat trips down the river on rafts to bring goods to New Orleans. And along that way, he saw slavery he saw the way slaves were being treated. He saw how they were sold in the marketplaces along the river. And he saw there was a big marketplace for slaves, of course, down in New Orleans. And he saw the way they were treated. And he could relate, like you said, the, back to that, that that experience he was having uh, <laughs> as being rented out uh, and not being allowed to go to school so uh, in in getting an education. So all the education that he had. Uh, was when he was in New Salem, and he started doing education on his own. And he went to New Salem uh, when he reached the age of 22. He was legally a, a major, and he could leave uh, the, his, his family without any repercussions. And that's when he started teaching himself, first of all, how to be a surveyor, and then later uh, how to be an attorney he, by using borrowed books uh, from a man uh, that was a, an attorney in Springfield, which is about 60 miles away, for, or a little bit less than that, maybe 40 miles away from uh, New Salem, where where he was living. And he would borrow the books and he would read. And after two years of studying on his own, he was able to pass the bar exam. And then he moved into Springfield to where he could practice with the man that had loaned the books to him. So. That's that's where we brings us to, because he he went to Springfield in eighteen thirty seven and then what you were talking about was the uh, the Lyceum speech which he gave in thirty eight so he had mm-hmm. just gotten into uh, into living in Springfield as the, an attorney
0: and the point I would like to make for our listeners here in twenty twenty is we hear news outlets and experts talk about that that the environment of kids affects their potential success in life. And and certainly that can make a difference. However, uh, we look at kids and say, oh, they're disadvantaged. They have a dysfunctional family. They can't ever make it. They need all kinds of government programs to help them. And here we have Lincoln. You talk about a dysfunctional family, a dysfunctional relationship, where the father yeah. is actually renting the, the kid out and and taking the fruits of his, the money from the fruits of his labor. And yet look that's at what right. Lincoln did. He he did not have formal education. He had a mother, a stepmother that wanted to make that happen, but he persevered. And I think that that is a message of hope that we need to have for every young person in America.
1: That's that's so that's so well said. Kim, you're very right. And And we should all look at that and, and take the lessons from that and it, again, I always like to say that three of our greatest Americans were George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, and of course Abraham Lincoln, and all three of those, each one of them had no more than a combined year of what we would call formal education, so they all made great things of themselves even without that education so
0: it is so astounding. great
1: examples.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, let's jump over. We had uh, gotten through the speech uh, to the Young Men's Lyceum in the broadcast on October 27th. Would recommend people go back to Kim Munson, dot com to find that. Let's jump in here now. The next thing we wanted to talk about was the Peoria speech. So set that up for us, Ben Martin.
1: Okay. So the Peoria speech, we, we're going to talk about three different types of speeches today, or three different types in their debates, really, here. And the debates were, the first debates we're going to talk about are the debates of 1854, when this is what brings Lincoln back into politics. He he retired from politics in the early 1850s, and he started really taking full-time his practice as an attorney, And, and he was a very successful attorney. I, I said before, and, and most lawyers can appreciate this more than probably anybody else can, and that is he had 175 cases where he was the attorney of record, and he argued before the Illinois State Supreme Court. And, and that's, that's a pretty amazing record. Uh, and so he was a very successful attorney, and he was enjoying his life but and he was he had stopped in politics in fact he had given up a fifth term of being elected to the state legislature in Illinois to to be an attorney a full-time attorney and so he was doing really well and then this these things started. You know, we, we had the Louisiana Purchase we talked about and the Compromise of 1820 and then the Compromise of 1850, which did away with that compromise. And then after that, we had set that line up and that we had said, okay, these states were going to be, there were going to be slave states, and these states uh, by this demarcation were going to be free states. And then Douglas, Senator Douglas from Illinois, comes along and he becomes the great compromiser and he makes up this act called the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which says that these two territories can now decide for themselves whether they want to be slave states or they want to be free states. And Lincoln says, I can't take this anymore. We're destroying our country. I'm going to come back into politics from his successful life as an attorney. It reminds us a lot of what is happening today. Lincoln didn't need to be in politics. He was having a good, successful life and having a lot of fun as an attorney outside of that. But he came back to embroil himself in politics so that he could help set the nation back on the right course again, the course that our framers and our founders had put us in. And that is what brought him back in. To politics, and so the first thing that happens is he has this debate, sequential debate, with Douglas is speaking. Douglas is speaking about what a great thing this is, this popular sovereignty, and so Lincoln goes to, to he goes to Peoria, Illinois, where Douglas is supposed to speak. Douglas is supposed to speak out in the open at the courthouse in Peoria. Peoria is the second largest city in Illinois at the time. And so Lincoln, uh, I mean, sorry, Douglas gets up to speak. Lincoln is in the crowd. Douglas starts speaking in the early afternoon, a little bit after two o'clock in the afternoon, and he speaks for three hours. It's, all, it's at way after five o'clock in the afternoon when he finishes his speech. And then that's when Lincoln gets up and he, and he talks to everybody, <laughs> and, and he says, I would like to speak to you. I would like to answer Judge Douglas's uh, comments about this, this Kansas-Nebraska Act. And uh, they, they, they say, oh, wow, you know, it's 530. We've been standing this whole time. It's mid-October in Illinois, they're standing outside, and there's no seats or anything like that. And, and Lincoln looks at that, and he says, you know, uh, look, you guys, I know you're tired. I know you're hungry. But he says, I would like to answer Judge Doug, 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 Douglas's speech, and I would like you to listen to me, and I would like to speak as long as Judge Douglas does. But I know you're tired and hungry, so why don't we make this deal? Why don't you guys go home and have your dinner and have a little rest and come back here at 7 o'clock in the evening, because I want to speak as long as (laughs) Judge Douglas speaks to you guys. So now (laughs) if you put that in your mind, you're talking about 10 o'clock in the evening. But then he said, I've also made a deal with Judge Douglas that he can speak for an hour after I speak. And I've done that so that you will come back, because if, if you come back, all you Democrats go back, you won't come back to listen to me speak, but you might come back for the enjoyment of watching Judge Douglas skin me after I speak. <laughs> so now we're talking about another hour, so we're talking about 11 o'clock at night. And so how many of us today had that much interest in politics and who was running to come back and stand out in the cold again for another four hours? while it was getting, you know, close to, almost close to midnight.
0: Well, I'm seeing seeing parallels, actually, between Donald Trump and Abraham Lincoln. People are waiting hours and hours and hours to hear Trump speak. And also, here's a guy who had a very successful life that feels compelled to come back into, or not come back into, to go into politics because he's so concerned about the direction of our country.
1: That, that's exactly right. That's that's exactly right, Kim. And and uh, for him to do this was just amazing. And and you know, like I said, this is the this is the same parallel that's happening today. And for that popularity, for those people, the people in Illinois knew Lincoln. The people outside of Lincoln didn't know him, and so they came back. Not there were five thousand people that listened to Douglas speak, and they gave him great cheers and everything. So you know, they were partisan. They liked. Douglas but you know do you think they would come back afterwards you know when they could go home and eat and not worry about coming back but you know they did and in, in fact, the the crowd that came back after they after at seven o'clock, after Douglas had spoken, came back to listen to Lincoln was larger than the the large crowd that Lincoln that uh, Douglas had had when he spoke.
0: This had to be making Douglas crazy. I also want to think that strategically, I, I mean three hours. What on earth can you yeah. talk about for three hours? I would think strategically, Douglas was probably trying to talk for a really long time so that people would be tired and that Lincoln would not be as effective or have as much of uh, an opportunity to speak with these people, and Lincoln outsmarted him.
1: You're so sharp, because that's exactly what he does. We'll talk about that a little bit later after this speech, but that's exactly what he did. But see, this is the first time they're really down, you know, face-to-face with each other, and he's starting to understand that Lincoln's not this bumpkin, you know, he's not this uh this this uh country lawyer that doesn't know uh you know anything. He he knows quite a bit and he's he's very skilled. So this this really kind of floors him. Uh so uh, we we talk a little bit about that. We'll just go through that a little bit and uh <laughs> to say he said, they, they, you know, they all return, and, and uh, so Lincoln rose to speak, and he looked at the audience and told you, and he began speaking, and he said, I thought I could ap- appreciate an argument. This is Lincoln, and, and this is the way he was speaking, and he was speaking this way, really, for the first time. He was under a lot of control, and we'll talk about that. But he said, I thought I could appreciate an argument, and at times believed I could make one but when my opponent denied the subtle and plainless facts of history i could not argue with him the only thing i could do would be to stop his mouth was with a corn cob oh my <laughs> gosh now <laughs> he then carefully reviewed the douglas speech his conception of what what douglas had coined was this term of popular sovereignty saying that the people that let's do away with that Northwest Ordinance that we talked about before that was done by our, uh, by our founders in, in 1787 that said there would be no slavery in the territories. He said, let's, you know, that Lincoln was saying, do away with those and let's have this popular, not Lincoln, but Douglas, let's have this popular sovereignty where the people in those states can decide whether they want to be slave or free.
0: Okay. At this so, point, at this yeah. point, Ben, I'd like to make sure. a comment, and and we sure. see a parallel in America today, and that is where we talk about local control or states' rights, uh, right. and many times that's being used now to do things that are unconstitutional.
1: And exactly.
0: And uh, I've I've I finally have, have understood, if you will, that local government is certainly has a lot of purveyance a lot of power on what to do for a community. However, it always has to match up with the vision of the Declaration that all men are created equal, with these uh, rights from God of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And if there is a local law, or a state law, or a ordinance from a bureaucrat that is antithetical to that, then that needs to be be rejected. And ultimately, that's exactly right. Okay, great. And and you're
1: right, and that's a central theme throughout all of Lincoln's arguments here, of all the different speeches we're going to talk about, and all the different time periods. If you go back to the first one that you talked about, the Lyceum, when he's a 28 year old man, 29 year young man, and he's talking about he's talking about the principles of the Declaration of Independence upon which we were founded. And he uses that over and over again. The greatest book that, uh, it, that uh, I think has ever been written about Lincoln's political philosophy is a book called The Crisis of the House Divided by Harry Jaffa. And that's I've, I've referenced that. Uh, put that in my references for this uh, this this uh, presentation that we're doing today. And people, some people have compared that favorably to the ethics, the Nicomachean Ethics by Aristotle. I mean, that they think it's that fundamental of a book. And and uh, <laughs> there there was a time when uh, one one of uh, I guess his greatest love, I guess his greatest mentor was uh, Leo, Leo Strauss. Harry Jaffa's greatest mentor was Leo Strauss, a great uh, political philosopher. And he said, you know, there are only two people in the world that really understand that book. And he said, one of them is Harry Jaffa, and the other one is me, because he said it is so deep. And it, I've, I've had that book for several years, and I'm reading it. It, but it does tell you about what Lincoln's philosophy is, and it's all based upon the principles in the Declaration of Independence. And we're getting ready to see that here. So he talks about, first of all, that, hey, you know, he said, I'd like to have an argument, and he said, I think I can make a good one. But he says, when my opponent denies the the most settled and the most plain, plain acts of history, he says, I can't argue with him. You know, and, and so that's... That talks about his frustration because what he's saying is it violates the principles of the Declaration of Independence so he said Judge Douglas frequently with bitter irony and sarcasm paraphrases our argument by saying the white people of Nebraska are good enough to govern themselves then why are they not good enough to govern a few miserable Negroes (laughs) and Lincoln says well and I mean he really says that in fact you know, that's also part of the uh, of the Dred Scott-Stanford uh, decision. Mm-hmm. It says basically the same kind of things, and he says, I doubt not that the people of Nebraska, this is Lincoln, are and will continue to be as good as the average of people elsewhere. I do not say the contrary. What I do say is that they may be good enough, but that no man is good enough to gun over another man without that other man's consent. I say this is the leading principle, the sheet anchor of American republicanism. And Then he he goes on and he says, our declaration says, and we know these things, but it's always good to repeat them. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. And then he goes on to say, I have quoted so much at this time merely to show that according to our ancient faith, the just powers of government are derived from the consent of the governed. Now the relation of master and slave is a total violation of this principle, the master not only governs the slave without his consent, but he governs him by a set of rules altogether different from those which he prescribes for himself. Allow all the governed an equal voice in the government, and that and that alone is self-government.
0: Okay. So, I, I have to interject here once again how apropos this is to today. Look right. at what has happened with these... Uh, health orders from our these bureaucratic health departments and these politicians that are choosing who gets to stay open, who doesn't. And in essence, in a way, it's creating a, a slavery through taxes and regulations where government is taking more of the fruits of people's labor and using it for government. I know that it's a more subtle uh, comparison, but it's I see a lot of similarities to what is happening today, Ben Martin
1: oh I, I I agree with you in fact, totally. when we talked about the Lyceum, what I wanted to bring out in the lyceum was was that was when Lincoln was making a speech and and you know he was in politics, but he was making a non political speech, and he was talking about the lawlessness, all the violence that was happening in the big cities, one of them being St Louis oh, how. <laughs> How unique is that today, yeah, right? imagine that. You know, but he was talking about that, and he said it's because people are not doing—they're not following the law. They're not following the Constitution. How— how strange is that? That's exactly what's happening today. And he was arguing against that. And he was saying, we have to follow the Constitution. And the Constitution was laid upon the principles that were stated in the Declaration of Independence. So those are two examples. And so I just want to go, we'll, we'll talk about this, and uh, th- th- this, we'll, we'll wrap up this speech, the, the Peoria speech. He says, the following day... Was 17 October, and the speakers prepared to leave Peoria. Now the, he has given such a good speech that that uh, Douglas is on his backside. He's looking at this and going, "Wow, I never understood that." When when Lincoln finished speaking, after all this time, and the people stayed around, they were cheering. They lit these bonfires. They fired cannons. This, this is almost eleven o'clock at night now, and they're doing all these things before uh, before Judge Douglas has a chance to speak and, and to rebut the things that Lincoln has said. So, you know, he is just he's just back on his heels. He's going, oh, this is this is unbelievable. So the following day, the they are they leave. They're supposed to leave Peoria now. The, the, the Douglas who people say has never then no none of his friends have ever seen him asked for quarter. But he says, according to witnesses there, Douglas said that Lincoln had provided well he first of all he told Lincoln, he said, you know Senator Douglas told Lincoln, he said, you know, he said, you understand the territorial questions from the organization of government better than all of the opposition in the US Senate. And I, I do not see that I could make anything by debating that with you or with, with Lincoln. And so, that, uh, he, according to witness, the witnesses, Heath Douglas said that Lincoln had provided more trouble than all the opposition in the Senate combined, and followed up with the proposition that he would, Lincoln, that Douglass would, go home and speak no more during the campaign if Lincoln Would do the same to that proposition, and Lincoln acceded, being the gentleman that he was. However, on the next day, they are supposed to—they're leaving Peoria, and Lincoln is supposed to go home. And he thinks that Douglas is going home
0: too, because that's what Douglas said he was going to do.
1: That's what Douglas said he was going to do, but he had known that before this had all happened. Lincoln knew Douglas's. He knew Douglas's speech schedule. Douglas was supposed to go to Lacombe, which is a little bit farther away, maybe 30 miles or more away from uh, Peoria. And there's this man, Dr. Bowl who is the, one of the founders of the Illinois State Medical Society, and Judge Silas Ramsey, who had traveled to Peoria just to hear Lincoln speak on the 16th of October, and to persuade him to continue to go to Lacone to answer Douglas there on 17 October. And Lincoln had agreed to him that he would do that.
0: Now, but question, I, th- speak- I thought that Douglas said that he wasn't going to speak anymore.
1: Right, but this has already been scheduled, and these two men, these two distinguished gentlemen had come in to hear Lincoln speak, and they knew that he was supposed to be going to there, so they said, they had asked him before he spoke in Peoria, they said, would you go to Lacone and answer Douglas there? And he had agreed before they, they, Lincoln had agreed with them before he had had made this agreement with, with Douglas to go on. But he said, okay, I'll follow you there. In case Douglas does speak because okay. Douglas already, already promised me he wouldn't, so despite their agreement, Douglas leaves for Lacombe to speak there, and so Lincoln follows him so when du- when Lincoln Dr. Bowl and Judge Ramsey arrive in Lacone, Lincoln immediately goes to Douglas's room in the in the Lacone hotel after a few minutes, Lincoln comes out and he tells Dr. Bull and Judge Ramsey and all the other folks around there, that Lincoln, that Douglas has lost his voice and declared that he would not speak. And so Lincoln uh, subsequently announced politely, he said, he would not speak either unless it was to answer Judge Douglas. Some of Judge Douglas's friends said, maybe Douglas has not lost his voice, but his nerve. They further suggested that the degree of Douglas's infirmity might have fluctuated in proportion to his proximity to Lincoln.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that is funny.
1: <laughs> so Lincoln then returned home to Springfield, and surprisingly, that same day, 18 October, Douglas travels to Princeton, Illinois, to debate Owen Lovejoy. In that debate, Judge Douglas spoke until dark. To go back to your the perception that you had before, the unique, the keen perception that Douglas liked to speak long so that other people didn't speak and the crowd would go home after he spoke. So to, to go back now and to reflect upon Lincoln at Peoria, the tone of Lincoln at Peoria in 1854 became the even-tempered standard by which he guided his public life. He and his informed logic and magnanimous disposition became the sheet anchor of his political rhetoric his consistency of principle and prudent tactics joined to tireless public and private labors would forge an anti-slavery party which dominated american political history for generations the peoria speech had set lincoln on the road to the emancipation proclamation My home. My home. at peoria he had established himself, in the words of the Quincy Whig, a big newspaper in Illinois, as one of the truly great men of Illinois. Wow. So that's that first sequential debate, where Douglas speaks, Lincoln follows him and gets up and speaks after him. Okay. And that's what we call the sequen- sequential debates. Now we're going to change from 19, from 1854, when they're talking about the Kansas-Nebraska Act, and we're going to go to the d- debates for Sinich which happened in 1858. So this is the Senate seat that Douglas occupies and again we've we talked about this before. Douglas is the most prominent politician in all of America at this time and he had no interest in debating Lincoln, who was not well known as I said before outside of Illinois. So to combat Douglas's resistance again Lincoln employs the same strategy that worked in 1854. He Gets Douglas's speaking schedule, he follows Lincoln, I mean, he follows his Douglas, and every place that Douglas speaks, after he finishes and the crowd is still gathered, he stands up and he asks them to remain and listen to his answer to uh, the, the senator's remarks. And they, know, they do. And then he gets the last word because Douglas is off to his next scheduled speaking en- engagement. So the, one of the first places that this happens in, on a large scale is the, is the speech in Chicago. And on 9 July, 1858, Illinois Senator Douglas, Stephen Douglas gave a campaign speech to a raucous throng from the balcony of the Tremont Hotel in Chicago. Abraham Lincoln was in the audience, and when Douglas prepared to speak, And when he was preparing to speak, Douglas invited Lincoln to come and join him on the balcony to watch the speech. In his speech, Douglas rang the themes of the momentous campaign that Lincoln and Douglas waged that summer and fall for the Douglas Senate seat. Douglas paid tribute to Lincoln as a kind, admirable, and intelligent gentleman, a good citizen, and an honorable opponent but took issue with Lincoln's 16 June speech at the Illinois Republican Convention, famously known today as the House Divided Speech. In that, in that Republican convention, he was named as the Republican candidate for the Douglas seat. Now, remember, that Doug, the Republican Party is in its infancy then. In in that speech, Lincoln had famously asserted that the nation could not exist as half-slave and half-free. According to Douglas, Lincoln's assertion was inconsistent with diversity. Funny about that word popping up, too, mm-hmm. right? right? Diversity in domestic institutions that was the great safeguard of our liberties. This is all in quotes now. Then, as now, diversity, again in quip, quotes, was... Uh, a syllabus, hiding an evil institution that could not be defended on its own terms. So Lincoln responded to, I mean, Douglas responded to Lincoln's condemnation of the Supreme Court's Dred Scott decision, which was in 1857, just a year before this.
0: And uh, tell people what the Dred Scott decision was again.
1: Well, the Dred Scott decision was in 1851, and the Dred Scott had belonged to a master who had traveled from, uh, well, from down in New Orleans, and he traveled through all of these states, like Illinois, and, and other states that were free states, and so, and then into into slave states and then back into free states. He had sold, actually sold Dred Scott a couple of times during this thing, too. And so when he left Dred Scott in St. Louis, Dred Scott had actually married another slave, and they had had two children. Then Dred Scott petitions for his freedom, saying, you know, I've been through all of these free states, and I should be a free man. And so he petitions for his freedom. And of course, uh, Missouri's uh, court being a, Missouri being a slave state, rejects his, his, uh, his appeal to be free. And so it goes up to the Supreme Court. And in the Supreme Court, they go, they do the same thing. And they say that, you know, they reject his appeal for freedom. And uh, this is what, this is a really, they, this is one of those, what they call the worst decision the Supreme Court has ever made. And the guy that writes the, uh, the, the majority opinion is the Chief Justice Roger Taney, Justice, Chief Justice Roger Taney. And Roger Taney's basically his words in that say that the black man, this is, this is a Supreme Court decision, a written decision now. And this is by the Supreme Court's chief justice. And he says, in in essence, and in in actually writing, and in quotes, that the black man has no rights in the Constitution. And the black man has no rights that white man is bound to
0: respect. So the Supreme Court doesn't always get it Right. They,
1: that was the one that they got the most wrong, <laughs> right? And, and that's what it's called today. So he talks about that. He talks. So that's what the, the, the contingent was. That he says says not only is this is this is the essence of Judge Douglas's argument. He says not only is Lincoln an a abolitionist, but he is a crazy one. He comes up with this thing about a house divided cannot stand. And then he, he also went against the Supreme Court, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court's decision on the Dred Scott decision. Because Lincoln has this great speech, again, uh, against the Dred Scott decision. So he, he, they're talking about that. And Lincoln invited the, the audience after Douglas has made his speech with Lincoln, bringing Lincoln up onto the balcony, not as a sign of respect, but a sign of ridicule. They bring him up there so that he can ridicule him on, on the balcony after he says he's a good man and a great you know a great patriot and all this kind of stuff, then he starts destroying him, so Lincoln then stands up after Douglas's speech. he tells the audience to return the next evening because it's already <laughs> late, and he says, "Why don't you come back tomorrow evening?" and he said, "I will answer Douglas's speech and and this was one of his many great speeches, but one of Lincoln's many great speeches, but in one respect, it is uniquely great it 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 concludes with the explanation of the meaning of this day to Americans which matches which is matchless eloquence and insight into words that remain as relevant then as they do now and that, that's what we're talking about and so what is the title of that and what is the theme we've been talking about that runs through all of Lincoln's speeches and it's the 10th of July remember so the the title is The Eternal Meaning of the Independence Day. Wow. And so I'm going to quote, uh, you know, it's a, it's a longer speech, but I'm going to give you less than half of it, in, and I'm just going to pull excerpts out, and it'll give you the gist of the speech. Mm-hmm. And it says, uh, so Lincoln stands up. Now, remember, it's 1858. He says, and, and it, this is when he starts setting into his mind the pattern for which will become one of his most famous speeches, and that's the Gettysburg Address. And he starts going back on all of these to relate to today. He goes back to the Declaration of Independence, 1776. And he says, we are now a mighty nation. We are about 30 millions of people. We own and inhabit about one-fifteenth part of the dry land of the whole earth. We run our memory back over the pages of history for about 82 years, and we discover we were then a very small people, vastly inferior to what we are now, with vastly less country and vastly less of everything we deem desirable. We look upon the change as exceedingly advantageous to us and to our posterity, And we fix upon something that happened way back then, and in some way, being connected with this rise of prosperity. We find a group of men living in that day, whom we claim as our fathers and grandfathers. They were iron men. They fought for their independence and principle. And we understood that by what they did then, it has followed the great degree of prosperity we enjoy now. We hold this annual celebration, remember the 4th of July celebration, to remind ourselves of all the good done in the process of time and how it was done and who did it and how we are historically connected with it. And we go from these meetings, these celebrations of July 4th, in better humor, more closely attached to our fellow Americans and more firmly bound to our great nation, in every way, we are better for these celebrations. But after we have done all this, we have not yet reached the hole. There is something else connected with it. We have, besides these men, descended by blood from our ancestors, perhaps half of our people who are not at all connected to these men. They or their ancestors came from other lands and settled here, finding themselves our equal in all things if they look back through this history to trace their connection with those days by blood, they find they have none. They cannot carry themselves back into that glorious epoch and make themselves feel that they are part of us. But when they look through that old Declaration of Independence, they find that those iron men say, we hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. And then they feel it. That moral sentiment taught in that day <clears throat> excuse me, evidences their relation to those iron men, that it is the father of all moral principle in them, and that they have a right to claim it as though they were blood of the blood and flesh of the flesh of those men who wrote that Declaration of Independence. And so they are. This is the electric card in that declaration that links the hearts of patriotic and liberty-loving people everywhere, that it will link those patriotic hearts as long as the love of liberty exists in the minds of men. I would like to know if we take that wonderful old declaration which declares that all men are equal and we start making exceptions to it, then where will we stop? If that direct, if that declaration is not the truth, let us get that statute book and tear it out. Who is so bold to do it? And then he pauses for a long time to no response. And then he says, well then, let us stand firmly by it and unite as one people until we can again stand up and declare that all men are created equal. And so that is the essence of what that speech says. And it's it's very powerful. But again, that theme is the principles of the Declaration of Independence.
0: Wow. And so that was kind of like the reaffirmation of the Declaration. That's why you've always called Lincoln, what, the second father the of our father nation? The
1: father of our second founding. Okay,
0: yeah. okay. Interesting.
1: Because he brings back, eventually before he dies, you know, he brings back... He reestablishes the founders and the framers' principles, and he puts, as he says before, he puts slavery into the path, and that's what our founders and framers said, put the path into the path of ultimate extinction. And that's what, that's what he basically does with, with his life, his political life. So that was the first sequential debate for that, spe- that seat, the Senate seat. And then we're going to just talk a little bit about this, the second uh, sequential debate. And this is delivered at the Illinois State House during the senatorial campaign against Douglas, a month after his House divided speech, and briefly quoting that crucial phase. Remember, he did the House divided speech on 16 June, and now this is 17 July. So it's a month afterwards. And in this speech, Lincoln here disembowels uh, the popular sovereignty uh, premise or proposition and explains his opposition to the Dred Scott decision, as well as his views on Negro equality. Lincoln Douglas was not there because he had already gone on. But this was after Lincoln Douglas's speech, and Lincoln had, and as we talked about, it began to follow him around the state. Later, delivering speech after speech, is made in in these speeches that finally prompted the more, pardon me, formal, Douglas Lincoln Douglas debates that I that I call here. As the joint debates, because they actually were on the stage at the same time, okay. arguing these things. Yes, go
0: ahead, Ben. I want to make a point here, and that is sure. to take a, when you look at these s- speeches and you hear terms talking about Negroes and and all kinds of things. People need to look at these speeches in their entirety. They need to look at the context of what was happening at the time. So much, it happens so much in 2020 America now that there are little excerpts that are taken from different speeches and then they're trumpeted out there that, that oh, isn't this terrible or this is what this person meant. And people need right. to be informed. They need to understand the context and they also need to, to look at it in its entirety before they start to take excerpts out uh, and putting those out there to people. I think that's really important.
1: I think it's important too. That's why when I talk about these things, before I talk about speeches, I try to talk about the background of what's going on, and I try, even though we can't talk the whole speech, I try to bring in the excerpts which which reflect the essence of the speech. So, I, I you know hope I'm not being uh, you know I hope I'm never blamed as doing as no doing not
0: at this all. I yeah I wanted to make sure people understood that. So continue yeah. on.
1: Okay, so we, those were the two. Sequential debates that we had, like that I talked about, where Lincoln, where Douglas would get up and speak, and then have to leave to go to his next speech, and then Lincoln would get up and say, "Hey, why don't you guys stick around? I'd like to answer that." (laughs) And they do
0: talk about Douglas's nemesis.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he goes crazy. So the Lincoln joint debates are all also known as the Great Debates of 1858. They were a series of seven debates between Abraham Lincoln and the. Republican Party candidate for the United States Senate from Illinois, and the incumbent Senator, Senator Stephen Douglas, as we talked about before, the Democratic Party candidate, and, and the incumbent, as, as we talked. Now, he, wait. It, says, it, it,
0: now, yeah, Douglas was a Republican or a Democrat?
1: No, Douglas was a Democrat. He okay. was the okay. most powerful guy in, in all of our political in, in all the political landscape during that time in america okay. and, and so i just want to put in the reference again in the frame of reference here that until the seventeenth constitutional amendment of nineteen thirteen senators were elected by the state legislators so lincoln and douglas were trying to win control of the illinois assembly by their speeches they weren't campaigning for themselves, in essence, they were campaigning for the people from their party that were running for the state legislature, and so the people in the state legislature were, were the. It was sort of like an electoral college. You know, they were the ones that would vote to who the senators were, because at that time, the way that our framers had set up the constitution, that the senators were actually ambassadors from the state, mm-hmm. and they would go to represent their states. In the national, the national Senate, and, and and so that's the way it was supposed to work.
0: That, and that's a whole other discussion. But I'd like to yeah. make the point that it was during the early 1900s that I call them the Progressive Amendments were passed to the they Constitution. Are
1: the progressive Amendments.
0: And right. that was the progress, or The income tax. It was uh, in, changing. Senators would be elected by popular vote. Instead of by the uh, state legislators, and the reason the framers did that was to again, once once again, put a a check on the balance of powers and to make sure that right. states had a voice as well. I think it it will probably never change it, but I think it would be hooves to go back to. Uh, something more constitutional on that, but so your point is that change was not made until the early 1900s, and right. Douglas 19, and Lincoln were for that one. right. They were lobbying, uh, or they were presenting to the legislators there in uh, uh, Illinois to try to get right. their support to become a U.S. senator.
1: That's exactly right, Kim. Thanks. Thanks for uh, making that really clear, and, and that's true. And, and when we go back and we talk about those progressive amendments. They were done by the greatest racist that ever occupied the White House, and that was President Wilson
0: Woodrow Wilson Woodrow Wilson. Mm-hmm.
1: Woodrow Wilson, yes, and so and that 's when uh, our, the decline of our education system started with John Dewey, mm-hmm. who was not the Secretary of Education because there wasn't such a thing. Uh, in name only he was not that that's that's exactly what he did and he started changing our education system way back then and it's gradually been changing to the point now where we're teaching sixteen nineteen history instead of seventeen seventy six so it's it's terrible and that's one of the things that president trump has promised to do is to change our education system back into the sub you know as we talk about uh, bob woodson We're talking about the 1776 project, which he's going to put in place when he gets Mm reelected. So, so until that 17th Amendment, we talk about that they 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 were uh, elected. The senators were elected by the members of the state legislature, both the House and the Senate. And so, uh, since that election, since 1858 was an election year for the, the you know for in general for the for the representatives. And the and the uh, the state and the senators of the state, and it was also the for the the national senate, the U.S. Senate seat. Link, I mean, uh, Stephen Douglas comes out of Washington and he comes back down to campaign for in 1858. That didn't normally, that didn't always happen. I'm not going to say normally, but it didn't always happen unless the senatorial election coincided with that, and, and, and then they would come back to the state, and, and they would present their cases like they're doing right now. So this was, this was a little bit unique here. And in, uh, the, uh, Douglas decided to enhance his own chances by being chosen by campaigning for the Democrat legislature. So with the help of a friend who ran the railroad, Douglas traveled the state giving speeches Pretty easy to do when you when right. you have a friend that owns a railroad. And wherever he went, that annoying Republican candidate would show up and give voters reasons not to trust Douglas and <laughs> to get the last word. Finally, Douglas pulled his pulling his hair out, agreed to meet Lincoln face to face in a series of debates in the remaining congressional districts in the state. Now, to to describe that a little bit, Lincoln and Douglas decided to hold one debate in each of the nine congressional districts in Illinois. Both candidates had already spoken, as I talked about before, in those sequential debates in Springfield and in Chicago, within a day of each other. So they decided that their joint appearances would be held in the remaining seven districts. Each debate lasted three hours and the debate had the format of each candidate being able to speak for 90 minutes, with the order of speakers varying in each debate. The first speaker would speak for 60 minutes, then the second speaker would speak for a whole 90 minutes, and then finally the first speaker would come back and speak for 30 more minutes, as the incumbent, Douglas, spoke first, in four of the debates. So he started with number one, and then they alternated after that. But in the seven, seven debates, he, get to, he got to speak at the advantage as the first speaker for four of those. Okay. So that's, that's a general idea of the format of these debates. Okay. They are generally considered one of the most famous political contests in American history, tackling the issues of the survival of the Union and the institution of slavery. Illinois was a free state, and the main issue discussed in all seven debates was slavery in the United States, particularly its future expansion into the new territories. Before the first debate even took place, Abraham Lincoln had addressed the crowd in Springfield, as we talked about before, known famously as the House Divided Speech. In it, Lincoln attacked the doctrine of popular sovereignty, saying that, It had clearly failed in its goal of ending conflict over slavery. Then he went on to quote the Bible, saying, A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently, half slave and half free. Either the opponents of slavery will arrest the future spread of it, or its its advocates will push it forward till it shall become alike lawful in all the states, old as well as new, north as well as south. The widespread coverage of the debates turned Lincoln into a national figure. Wow. So we talk about the first one, we'll give a little bit about each of them. The first debate, now you have to understand the atmosphere. It's like if you've ever been to a college football game on a Saturday afternoon in the fall. Now this is the fall. Remember, it starts in August, but it goes in September and October, and all of these debates are outdoors. But it's they they start in these small towns. Most of them are really small towns, and this great amount of people come into it, and they have bands playing, and they have firecrackers, and they have signs, and they're doing parades and everything like that. And it and it that's what it said. That the closest thing they can um, and they compare it to is uh, Saturday football games in, in college towns. So the first debate is held in the town of Ottawa, which saw its population of 9,000 more than double as crowds described it descended on the town that day before the debate. A crowd of at least 12,000 was at the debate. So now you imagine a town of 9,000 and 12,000 people come in
0: town. How could they hear them? Because there was no amplification. How could they hear the speakers?
1: Well, you know, they were quiet until certain times. There wasn't a lot of mumbling and stuff. And there weren't chairs to sit in, okay? So they were there. They, they They were really committed to this thing. Just like college football fans are committed to their teams, you know, when they come in. And so they're all in for all of this stuff. And so before a huge crowd assembled in the town park, Douglas spoke for an hour, attacking—this this startled Lincoln that he attacked him with such pointed questions, and, and so caustically. Douglas engaged in rape-baiting that would be shocking today, and Lincoln asserted his opposition to slavery did not mean he believed in total racial equality. It was a shaky start for Lincoln. Lincoln said that popular sovereignty would nationalize and perpetuate slavery. Douglas replied that both Whigs and Democrats believed in popular sovereignty and that the Compromise of 1850 was an example of this. Lincoln said that the national policy was to limit the spread of slavery, and he mentioned the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, as we've spoken about. In our, in our last program, as an example of this policy, which banned slavery from a large part of the Midwest and in all new territories. The Compromise of 1850 allowed the territories of Utah and New Mexico to decide for or against slavery. That's the popular sovereignty thing started. Uh, but it also allowed the admission of California as a free state. And reduce the size of the slave state of Texas by taking away those two properties, those two territories of Utah and New York, which is, which or were or New Mexico, time, or New Mexico. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. I would mm-hmm. like to get her into New York. Okay, by a. <laughs> Did you just say that? <laughs> no, I didn't say that. I don't know who that was. There was somebody over. There. Shut up. Okay, <laughs> and he ended the slave state, but not for slavery itself, in the district. But he ended. He ended the slave trade, I'm sorry, not slavery itself, in the District of Columbia. This is all, again, the Compromise of 1850. In return, return, the South got a stronger Fugitive Slave Act than the version that had been mentioned in the Constitution, not mentioned, had been stated in the Constitution. Douglas said that the Compromise of 1850 replaced the Missouri Compromise ban on slavery in the Louisiana Purchase Territory, north and west of the state of Missouri, while Lincoln said, a topic he went back to in the Jonesboro debate, which will come up on the third debate, that Douglas was mistaken in seeing populist sovereignty and the Dred Scott decision as being in harmony with the Compromise of 1850. To the contrary, he said popular sovereignty would, if it was carried out, nationalize slavery. And so they talked about this stuff, and he talked about partisan remarks such as Douglas' accusation that members, he would, this, is, this is how he was attacking Lincoln then. He called them, instead of the Republican Party, he called them the back, Black Republican Party, and they were all abolition, abolitionists including Lincoln. And he cited proof, as we talked about before, in Lincoln's House Divided speech. And, and so, and then also opposing the Dred Scott decision. It deprives the Negro of the rights and privileges of citizenship, Lincoln responded to him. And that the next, uh, he said, the next Dred Scott decision could allow slavery to spread into free states, And Douglass accused Lincoln of wanting to overthrow state laws that excluded blacks from states such as Illinois, which were popular with northern Democrats. Lincoln did not argue for complete social equality. He did, but he did say that Douglass ignored the basic humanity of blacks and that slaves did have an equal right to liberty. So he was talking about yeah. Well,
0: at this point, because if you would take some of these comments that occurred during these debates, I think people need to understand that this this was been a process for America to get rid of slavery. But the other thing that is dishonest out there on this whole slavery narrative is that people do not acknowledge the fact that slavery at that time was prevalent. Throughout the world, it was absolutely right. astonishing that these little 13 colonies would put us on a path within 70, 75 years to really answer the question on whether or not one man could own another man. And it's it's just dishonest what's happening in this narrative in 2020 not to look at the big picture. And as you made some of these comments about Lincoln, there it's it's incremental. People are are moving towards freedom incrementally they're tussling with these questions and well, he's growing lincoln is growing like yes you
1: said you, and you see it throughout these seven debates where he talked the things that he talks about at the first and this again we're talking about this is the first debate and he's talking about things he grows i think lincoln has in his heart you talked about that when we first started about lincoln being treated as a rented mule and about also his seeing firsthand slavery in his two trips down the Mississippi and the Ohio River, down to New Orleans, and he sees slavery all along the way. So I think we can tell deep in his heart he believes in the principles of the Declaration of Independence, and he also believes that, you know, that that there should not be slavery. But he knows that if he's going to get elected, it's sort of like our framers did when they were doing the Constitution. You know, they had to compromise in order to get the thing passed and to keep us together as a nation. And that's the same thing that Lincoln is doing right now. He realizes that he can't get elected if he, go, if he says what's really in his heart. So he kind of mealy-mouths some of the things that he says. You know, and it's not what he ends up being in 1865 when he's pushing with all of his might as uh, as he did in 1862 and 63, the Emancipation Proclamation. In 1865, he's pushing for that 13th Amendment to to end slavery in the United States. So it's a growing process for him, too, and you're so right to point that out, because some of the things you hear him say in these earlier debates, and, you know, he kind of echoes, but he gets a little bit softer as he goes along in the debates. You know, he says things that would say, wow, he couldn't say that today, but but he understood. I mean, Lincoln understood humanity, he understood human nature probably better than than 99.9% of all the people that have ever lived.
0: And it's because so. he studied. He certainly yeah, was he very smart, but oh he also he studied and he thought about things and he ruminated on them. And I would encourage people to do that today. We have all kinds of information coming at us, but we need to be more judicious on the different uh, outlets that we look to, and we need to go out and do our own research on these issues so that we understand them instead of having them just force-fed to us.
1: That's a, that Boy, you're so right about that, because hearing, and you hear all the things that are happening. Some of the things that are being reported to us, like all the things that are happening on, happening on mass media to censor what we're getting. But, you know, those are the things that are coming out. There are probably so many more things, and we're just deluged by it. I don't know about you, I'm sure it's the same with most people. I get 150 emails a day on my thing, and they're all political Mm -hmm. and everything, you know, and and it's just too much to comprehend. You can't read all of them. I wouldn't even try to read all of them. But, But we have to be, like you said, judicious or prudential and what we, what we determine to consume, I guess. Mm-hmm. But, we, but we have to consume it, and we have to think about it. We can't just take it for granted. So in, in this thing, the, the key thing in this thing that's really important in this debate, the other thing was, besides, Lincoln was surprised and shaken by the, by the vicious attack that Lincoln had made upon him. Or
0: Douglas had made upon him.
1: Douglas had made upon him. And, you know, it kind of shook him. So it made him think he had to go back and talk about that. But the big thing that he did here, he asked Lincoln seven questions. And, uh, I, you know, I don't want to go through all of them, but it's, it's trying to get him to uh, get to a point where he contradicts himself on the slavery question. Got it. But he asked him seven questions, and, uh, you know, I have them here, but we won't go through them right now. But, but they basically are all the same kind of questions. And Lincoln doesn't answer, answer them. At that debate okay he'll answer him in the next debate so anyway that's one of the big things that happens here He attacks Lincoln Lincoln is kind of thrown back on his heels and he gets ready for the second debate now that first debate was in 21 August the second one is in 27 August and it's in Freeport Illinois and so it's on the 27th of August and that day it's a cool day it's damp and it's cloudy and special trains bring people in from Galena and Chicago and Rockford and other cities in northern Illinois, and in, even in Iowa. And he estimated that the crowd was as high as fifteen thousand. So that was a, that was a huge crowd, fifteen thousand people at the time. Again, with no facilities, no chairs to sit on, uh, you know. And and you talk about going into a town. That you're more than doubling the population, you know. Where are they going to eat? You know, you have right. to bring your own stuff. I mean, it's amazing. And this, these debates last, and then you have to go, and, and you're traveling by wagon or by horseback, or if you're as lucky as Douglas, you can travel by train, because one, one of your buddies owns the railroad. <laughs> but most people can't do that. So Lincoln, in that debate, this is one of this is one of the most important debates and that's why I want to emphasize it a little bit. Lincoln answered those seven questions posed at the Ottawa debate by by Douglas, and then he asked for his own, and Douglas's response became known as the Freeport Doctrine. That's a, that's a really key phrase to remember, which was had ramifications at the 1860 Democratic National Convention. And so we have... Uh, we have uh, Doug Lincoln's answers to those seven questions, and we also have the four questions that, uh, that Lincoln asked Douglas in return. And he says, you know, I want you to answer these two. You wanted me to answer those, so I want you to answer these. And, and, answer, and Douglas doesn't wait. He answers them right away. And his answer to the second of those questions uh, became what, what is known as the free, poor doctrine, and is what what was really telling. He says, he asked him on that one, he says, can the people of a U.S. territory, this is Lincoln asking Douglas, can the people of the U.S. territory in any lawful way against the wish of any citizen of the United States exclude slavery from its limits prior to the formation of a state constitution? And he got... Amazing applause for that! Uh, for asking that question, and link, and then uh, this is where the idea of popular, of popular sovereignty sprang out in the debates. Popular sovereignty was a suggestion that people of a territory would be able to choose for themselves whether they would be under the influence of slavery or not. Douglas was an avid supporter of this. He was the one that put forth he was a sponsor and the and the promoter of that Kansas Nebraska Act of 1854 and Lincoln thought that slavery on the other hand should be banned from the territories altogether as it was stated in the 18 in the 1787 Northwest Ordinance so in that debate this issue officially came out into the open and in his opening speeches, and then Lincoln goes first in the second debate. Can the people of the U.S. territory exclude from slavery, from exclude slavery from their limits prior to the formation of a state constitution? Douglas responded that the people of a territory could keep slavery out of even out of it, even though the Supreme Court said that the federal government had no authority to exclude slavery simply by refusing to pass a slave, to refusing to pass a slave code, and other legislation needed to protect slavery. Douglas alienated Southerners with this Freeport doctrine, which damaged his chances of winning the presidency in 1860. As a result, Southern politicians used their demand for a slave code to drive a wedge between the Northern and the Southern wings of the Democrat Party splitting the majority politically in 1858. That emphatic yes that Douglas had given to that uh, question won him the senatorial election of 1858, but doomed him to failure in the presidential race, which would be two years later. So that free, port debate, and more specifically, Lincoln's critical question— shaped the entire history of the United States. Without the Lincoln-Douglas debates and that particular question and, and Douglas's answer, he said the French might still have slaves and the Union might be made up of only the free states of the 1800s, the southern states having split off to form their own country. Slavery, slavery might still be a factor with thousands of innocent humans forced to work for free. Now, he's talking about in that time frame, he said the world would be devoid of the powerful figure of the United States of America. Without the Lincoln-Douglas debate at Freeport, Lincoln might never have become president. And so half of the United States would have been denied freedom. So that's how consequential the historians think that that debate was. And that I is, have to agree with him on that.
0: That is <laughs> astonishing. Astonishing. This conversation is, it, it goes by so quickly. However, yeah. we're getting close to the end of our time. What else should we cover with this, uh, Ben Martin?
1: Well, we can go all the way to the end, you know, because the, the, con- the conversations seem to, as they go along, to get more and more to Lincoln's advantage, because he gathers his legs after that first debate. And you can see from this, his, his, his um, conversation and his questions in the second debate how he is getting stronger. And he gets stronger as it goes along, but they go back and forth. And Lincoln is forced to say things that he wouldn't normally say about slavery, and that's the, some of the things that you've already discussed. But he, the, the debates go from uh, those two States we talked first about Ottawa and then uh, we talked about the, uh, the the debate in Freeport and then it goes just I'll just go through those really quickly it goes to the debate in Jonesboro on the 15th of September there are two debates in in uh, August the two debates in September the second debate is in Charleston which is all the way on the east side of the state about middle of the state it was a Charleston debate. But uh, before that, I told you about the, the third was Jonesboro, and Jonesboro was all the way in that southern tip of the state, and that is where that state, that was the slavery country, because it was surrounded by the slave states of Kentucky and Nebraska, so a lot of the people came from there. But only 1,500 spectators showed up to that speech, uh, to that debate. But it was heavily, it was strongly influenced by the slave the slave-leaning people that that were at that debate. And so then they go to Charleston, which is again on the east side of the state, all the way about halfway up the state. And then they move over to the west side, and they go to Galesburg, which was the Knox College was at Galesburg. And again, they had 15,000 people at that debate. Some of the people camped in tents on the outskirts of Galesburg. It was unbelievable and then they had the sixth debate which was Quincy which was just down south of where uh, Galesburg was and it was on the river i have actually most of these towns or all of these towns in illinois you can go to them and the place where that debate was held is still kept you know so that in remembrance there there are statues of the of the, of lincoln and douglas there the stands where they where they or maybe their reconstructed stands of where they spoke are still there and the places set up in many cases, like in Quincy where I've been, are just like they were when the debate was taking place. Right in the same exact location. And in Quincy right across the street, there is a museum there run by the local townspeople of the debate. So it's it's really an enjoyable thing to go to go to these towns and see the statues of the, of the people and, and watch the debates. And most of them have some kind of little information place right around there that talks about them. And then they have plaques out there on where the debates were taking place. So it's really, I, I really encourage people to go see these for themselves. And they can hear recordings of people speaking, you know, in those voices. It's really great. And so you go to the seventh debate, which was at Alton, which was, again, a little bit south. And during those two debates that we that we talk about there Quincy and Alton which were on the Mississippi River the uh they actually had steamboats come from St. Louis and from uh, other parts of of the of the, of the states in between because that's the dividing line between the states had come there and it cost a dollar to go by steamboat from St. Louis all the way up to Alton or to uh <laughs> Or to Quincy and and back. It was a return. That was a return trip. So the results. I'll go quickly to the end, and we'll go to the results. The seven. Uh, the the seven was the uh, the battle versus the war is what I call it. Mm-hmm. So in that election, that the, the election wasn't until 1859, the U.S. Senate election in Illinois, and in that election. The districts were, had been drawn in 55 in their, in their census when the majority of the population was in the southern state. So it greatly favored the uh, the, slavery for, the slavery side of this election. So the districts were drawn in the favor of Douglas party, and the Democrats won 40 seats in the state House of Representatives, while the Republicans won 39. and in the state Senate. Republicans won 11 seats, and the Democrats won 54. So overall, Douglas was reelected by the legislature, by the people sitting in the legislature, 54 to 46. you so just add those two totals up in both of those. Even though Lincoln's Republicans won the popular vote with a percentage of 51% and in, in an election that... I'm trying to think it was two forty four thousand votes were cast in there uh, for the for the Republicans, and two hundred eleven thousand votes were cast, forty six percent for the Democrats. And so it, so Lincoln lost that debate. He lost that battle, but because of the the things that he said in the House Divided Speech and in those elections, in those debates, he gained national recognition, and he gained favorable national recognition. And throughout the United States, people knew of Lincoln. And Lincoln was no dummy. He took those debates, he took the notes that were uh, taken by stenographers, all of the the big newspaper sent professional stenographers to record every word a team of professional uh, stenographers from the big newspapers came and recorded every word that was said in those debates lincoln took those transcripts and he edited them them you know so that they they were presentable and he put them into a book form and in that book form he also included his House Divided speech, and his speech at Bloomington, his house, uh, the speech that we talked about in Chicago, and Douglas's speech in Chicago, and his speech in Springfield, which we talked about was in 17 July. So he put this all into a book, and it became a best-selling book. So people throughout the country that had not read the newspapers, you know, had this book to look at, and it kind of surmised all of these reports. And this helped and Lincoln uh, being known nationally, and his principles being known nationally. And that helped him in his uh, presidential election of 1860. So he lost the war, in uh, the, the battle in 1858, but because of that battle, he won the war.
0: What an amazing uh, progression, To and to take yes. the time here, Ben Martin, so that people can really understand that—that's the beauty of these podcasts—is it actually gives us more time to talk about that. What's your final thought that you want to leave with our podcast listeners today?
1: I want to—I want to leave that the parallels are so, so, so crystal clear between what was happening then at that point that became a national crisis that we actually had to go to war because they were doing all the things that are being done now from 1838 when Lincoln makes his emancipation proclamation I mean makes his speech in the lyceum about about the perpetuation of our union and the principles of the declaration of independence and he keeps that going and he says we have to follow the law we have to be lawful people and we have to con- continue because he said That declaration that set the principles for our Constitution, which is the longest-running Constitution in the history of the world, and we are the most progressive, not progressive, but the prosperous, we are the most prosperous nation in the history of the world. And, And our people enjoy more freedom, and we have done more good for the world than any other nation before our time. And, and we have to follow those principles that were set forth. Those principles in the Constitution that are formed into the Constitution, those are recognized by the world as the, greatest, as the greatest governing document that has ever been presented and ever been produced, has ever been shown to work for over two centuries and, and we should go back to that. We should not think that we are smarter than our founders who really studied this, that we're smarter than Lincoln who studied this. They studied it, and we are now trying to say, well, we don't need—this Constitution is old. It's, it's not good. We don't need it anymore. We need something more modern and more adjusting to our norms. Well, our norms are the principles, the principles that were started all the way back with Aristotle, the principles of behavior. And we need to follow those if we're going to maintain our our union, if we're going to maintain our country. Because if we ever put it asunder, we may never get it back.
0: That's why this particular election is so important. It's so important that we understand our history, the story of Lincoln, the Lincoln-Douglas debates, is, is so important. And I would recommend people start to turn off some of this mainstream media stuff. Turn off the TV and pick up these books and start to read them and ruminate on them and think about wow. them. Uh, because we really need to think great things. And uh, this, this republic is worth saving. Ben Martin, thank you to you. Thank you to the Harris family, which brings these yeah, shows and podcasts you. to you. And we will continue on next month.
1: Well, that sounds great.
0: And my friends, yes, thank you so much for listening. I greatly appreciate you, and God bless you, and God bless America.